This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. On Wednesday, House Democrats pushed through a sweeping expansion of federal voting rights against total Republican opposition. It's the latest battle in a raging war about elections aimed at countering GOP attempts to clamp down on ballot access. H.R. 1, known as the For People Act, would overhaul government ethics and campaign finance laws and seek to strengthen voting rights by creating automatic voter registration and expanding access to early and absentee voting. The vote on the bill comes as Republican-controlled state legislators across the country have launched their own offensive with some 250 separate measures taking aim at ballot access, including measures to limit mail-in voting and impose stricter voter identification requirements. It could become the most significant overhaul of U.S. elections and government ethics in a generation. The For the People Act requires states to offer same-day voter registration and would automatically register all eligible voters. It also limits states' ability to purge voter rolls and would restore voting rights to felons who've completed their sentences. Democrats say the reforms would expand voting access to marginalized groups, especially minorities, and establish some national standards. Republicans say it gives too much power to the federal government to manage what are supposed to be state-run elections. The legislation, while ambitious, is unlikely to pass in the Senate, where a supermajority of 60 votes is needed for the measure to pass. The measure was the latest bid by Democrats to beat back Republican efforts in state houses across the country to enact new barriers to voting that would consolidate power for the Republican Party amid false claims of rampant election fraud trumpeted by former President Donald J. Trump and his loyalists in Congress. Republican states across the country are taking the big lie and turning it into legislation, trying to disadvantage Democratic candidates by making it harder for their voters to cast a ballot. Why? Because Democrats who have embraced popular options like early voting and voting by mail turned out in record numbers and their guy won. While Congress has worked for decades to expand access to the ballot, often with bipartisan support. The issue has become a sharply partisan one in recent years, as shifting demographics and political coalitions have led Republicans to conclude that they benefit from lower voter participation rates, particularly in urban areas. Quite simply, they don't want black and brown people to vote because they know they won't be voting Republican. Now, they won't tell you that, obviously, but it's all coded in how they speak about election integrity, which has become the latest racist dog whistle. They're trying to figure out how to rig the game so that they can still hold on to the reins of power. And in doing so, they're undermining the very foundations of our democracy. Casting a shadow over the legislative debate is the specter of yet another attack on the Capitol. Based on credible threats, Capitol Police shut down Congress on Thursday in anticipation of a possible attack from followers of QAnon. Their adherents believe that March 4th, the original inauguration date set in the Constitution, is the day Mr. Trump will be restored to the presidency and renew his crusade against the country's enemies. It's not, and he won't. But that doesn't stop these lunatics from believing that this shit is actually true. Ironically, it's also these people, the QAnon followers and other extremists, who favor this type of strict voter exclusion 
and continue to push the big lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And it's in this context that state legislators are waging war on people's access to the ballot. The Department of Homeland Security and the FBI sent a joint intelligence bulletin to state and local law enforcement yesterday, warning that some extremist groups have, quote, discussed plans to take control of the U.S. Capitol and remove Democratic lawmakers on or about March 4th. The bulletin also states that domestic violent extremists have continued perception of election fraud and other conspiracy theories associated with the presidential transition, which may contribute to domestic violent extremists mobilizing to violence with little or no warning. Let's take a look at what's happening. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in an Arizona election lawsuit centered on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In the most important voting rights case in almost a decade, the court for the first time considered how a crucial part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 applies to voting restrictions that have a disproportionate impact on members of minority groups. The court heard the case's disputes over voting rights have become the main flashpoint in American politics. Led by loyalists who embrace former President Donald J. Trump's baseless claims of a stolen election, Republicans in state legislatures nationwide are mounting extraordinary efforts to change the rules of voting and representation and enhance their own political clout. Under questioning from Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the attorney for Arizona Republicans explained part of the reason why they want to keep the laws on the books is pure politics. It puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. The challenges being made are a bold and shameless attempt to rig the electoral system by state legislatures who are looking at a future where a Republican Party that is driven by white identity politics and antagonism toward immigration and non-white native-born Americans is a party that will find itself in a position where it is impossible to win an election because its own voters will be a statistical minority. The only solution will be to attack the mechanism of voting itself and try to restrict the ability of these groups to get to the polls. We need to understand them for who they are and what they're trying to do. These are the new redeemers. They are cleaving to this idea, Nicole, that this country must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. They're thinking that the demographics are the, it constitute the writing on the wall. And so what are they trying to do? They're trying to figure out how to rig the game so that they can still hold on to the reins of power. And in doing so, they're undermining the very foundations of our democracy. Those who back the Republican legislature efforts say they are needed to restore flagging public confidence in elections and democracy, even as some of them continue to attack the system as corrupt. In Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, for example, the chairs of House election committees refused for weeks or months to affirm that President Biden won the election. The chairs in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin urged U.S. House members of former Vice President Mike Pence to oppose the presidential electors certified after Mr. Biden won those states' votes. We are at a truly insane crossroads where the madness of Donald Trump and his authoritarian impulses 
are being turned into actual policy and being used to attack and corrode the pillars of democracy. You know, there's this there's this quotation that keeps coming to mind from James Baldwin, Nicole. The horror is that America is changing all the time without ever changing at all. That it is being done at the state level as well as inside the Supreme Court in a more polite and cogent manner is all the more insidious. It suggests that Trumpism, rather than being on the wane, has infected our political bloodstream. Um, we're now one election away in this country from losing our democracy because one party doesn't believe in it. We saw the poisoning of American democracy drip by drip, drop by drop this month until we saw 82% of Republicans said, hey, this is illegitimate. And once you reach that critical mass, you're in a lot of trouble as a society and a, and a country. And this is going to be the defining political fight, I suspect, over the balance of all of our lifetimes. In Georgia, where President Joe Biden won by less than 12,000 votes, the Republican-controlled legislature has voted to create sweeping new election laws that restrict voter access and are aimed squarely at Georgia's significant African-American population. Republican lawmakers in Georgia are pushing to roll back voting access just months after record voter turnout in the previously deep red state elected Democrats to the White House and the Senate. Georgia House Bill 531 passed largely along party lines over the objection of state Democrats and amid protests by civil rights groups angry over voter suppression. 90% of black voters chose Biden in Georgia, with similar numbers turning out for John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. Republican lawmakers in Georgia, buoyed by Trump's baseless claims, are now looking to erode this powerful voting bloc who has done so much to help turn Georgia blue. Republicans are effectively returning to one of the ugliest tactics in the state's history. Oppressive laws aimed at disenfranchising voters. Well, what they're trying to do in Georgia is limit the African-American vote. Um, and, and that's what Republicans uh, who are in charge of the state legislature are trying to do uh, in order to hold on to power and on a statewide level, given what just happened, reclaim the Republican legislation would undermine pillars of voting access by ending automatic voter registration, by banning drop boxes for mail ballots, and eliminating the broad availability of absentee voting. The bills would restrict early voting on the weekends, limiting the long-standing civic tradition of souls to the polls, in which black voters cast ballots on Sunday after church services. And this is a real tell here, because this has nothing to do with election integrity. Giving people more time to vote on the weekends simply makes it more convenient. And the fact that Georgia Republicans are trying to get rid of a method of voting that's extremely convenient for all voters, but particularly used by black voters, shows that this has nothing to do with election integrity. It has everything to do with voter suppression. And Georgia Republicans and Republicans elsewhere are weaponizing Trump's big lie now try to make it harder for Democratic constituencies to vote. Stacey Abrams, who lost her own Georgia gubernatorial battle in 2018 against Brian Kemp due to real and striking election irregularities and voter suppression, created a stunning coalition of black, brown, and Asian voters who helped Joe Biden win in 2020 and flipped the state with the election of Ossoff and Warnock. 
Her work succeeded against the backdrop of a Georgia legislature looking to tighten and restrict voter access even further. She told the New York Times that these laws have very little to do with election integrity and are aimed at denying people of color the right to vote. Rather than grappling with whether their ideology is causing them to fail, they are instead relying on what has worked in the past. Instead of winning new voters, you rig the system against their participation and you steal the right to vote. Democrats, we got to get in formation. Republicans are in a tailspin because of Donald Trump. However, they are in formation on voter suppression. And this is very, very dangerous. Over the next decade in the census that just happened, multiple states, Georgia, Arizona, whites go into the minority of the population. Some 200 separate legislative bills are now being considered across the country. All of them aimed at eroding access to the polls or disenfranchising wide swaths of the electorate. Indeed, a handful of bills have emerged that are grossly partisan in nature. One Arizona proposal would give the legislator the power to decide presidential elections by overriding the Secretary of State certification of electoral votes. Bills in Arizona, Mississippi, and Wisconsin would end the practice of awarding all electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the statewide vote. If this sounds like madness, it's because it absolutely is the biggest assault on voter rights since Jim Crow. Not all of these bills will pass, but all of them need to be fought, and the most dangerous of those will inevitably end up in the Supreme Court, which today, as we know, has a 5-3 to three conservative majority. for the main event. The rollback of voting rights to their pre-1965 status will have a profound effect on the future of democracy in this country. First and foremost is the chilling prospect that we are literally turning back the clock and regressing to a point in time where people of color were widely disenfranchised. It's ironic, then, that Donald Trump and his most conservative supporters hold up 1950s America as this idyllic time and place for the American experience that they seek to return the nation to, both morally and politically. Nobody here needs a history lesson, but there is also much to learn from the past. While it's true that the 1950s and early 1960s were a time of unprecedented growth and prosperity for white middle-class Americans, it was also the nadir of Jim Crow in the American South where under the banner of states' rights, Southern governors maintained a system of American apartheid that was brutal and repressive. Not until the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its twin, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, did this country begin to reckon with its terrible past. While there has been great progress, it has come at great cost. Untold thousands marched and protested for these rights and have given their lives or were maimed and injured to maintain their most basic rights for all Americans. The systemic attempt to disenfranchise people through the courts has been going on for years, but has metastasized under Donald Trump as the party it sees its own grip on power slipping. What's truly terrifying is the way in which it's being done. 
cloaked in disinformation and fucking lies. These are big issues at stake that will have ramifications for decades to come. To help make sense of this current moment, I reached out to my next guest, Jeet Here, the national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine and a progressive stalwart onto himself. Here has a sweeping view of American history and a wicked sense of humor. His ability to analyze history through the lens of conflict between the forces of progressivism and right-wing conservatism is extraordinary. So get ready for a masterclass in American politics. And let's listen now to that conversation. So, Jeet, in reference to the weird sort of golden pagan statue of Donald Trump that was unveiled at CPAC, you wrote, if only there were some sacred text one most people at CPAC claimed allegiance to that very explicitly warns against making golden idols. Discuss with me the increasingly messianic fervor being expressed for Donald Trump by his most ardent supporters. Where do traditional, non-insane conservatives even fit into this party anymore? Yeah, um, I think it's, I mean, I think the, uh, and you might know this very well, but um, Trump kind of took over the Republican Party. And it's not just that he, like, became a Republican leader, but he's become the kind of warlord of the Republican Party. Is like the sort of Genghis Khan figure, you know, that everyone has to pay allegiance to. And if they don't, uh, then they're sort of cut out. Um, and I think part of the explanation of that is that he was able to, um, get the kind of evangelical support and get the kind of support, um, of people, uh, with those kind of sympathies, uh, who really felt like their way of life was being threatened and that Trump was the savior. I think among those circles, they often refer to him as like a sort of like King David, right? Or um, uh, they, they, you kind of use these biblical analogies. But I, I think the danger always is that if you think that this guy has been sent by God to save you, he becomes a God. Uh, and so, so, yeah, literally we're seeing something out of the Ten Commandments, out of, you know, the um, warning against uh, uh, golden idols. And but I also think the person who did it kind of said like, well, it's also to own the libs, right? That That's... There's a kind of humorous aspect to this. But if you actually like look at the video of them carrying that thing through, like the people there like really loved it, you know, and uh, and I, I think part of Trump's success has been sort of channeling that religious energy uh, that you know has long existed, but turning it into a personality cult. Well, you made mention that he was sent by God, that his supporters think so. The truth is, he's the one that's been saying so. He's the one that thinks that he is like, I guess, the old, you know, um, French monarchs or English monarchs that they have blue blood, that they're different than the rest, that they've been anointed by God to be leaders. When it, And then on top of that, you also mentioned about Trump cutting people out of his life who he is angry with, of course, myself being included. But look at what he did at CPAC. He basically cut out from underneath them, you know, he cut their legs off, he started out with Mike Pence. I mean, they basically don't even speak anymore. But then he went after all 17 Republicans, right? Name by name, state by state, basically, in my opinion, destroying the Republican Party and actually doing a big favor to the Democratic Party as we're coming up to the midterm elections. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that uh, Trump um, has really turned the Republican Party into his own 
property. And in some ways, that's the most successful property he's ever had is a Republican party. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, and then he wants to hold on to it. And there's a real contest, but it's a lopsided contest, uh, to like who owns the Republican party. And if you look at like, you know, there's only 17 Republicans in the Congress, you know, like 10 in the house and seven in the Senate that, uh, voted to impeach or to, um, uh, uh, punish. Uh, that's not, that's nothing. Uh, but I mean, this kind of, servility um is really something and maybe something i can ask you a question like you know a lot of people have been astonished by someone like lindsey graham like why did this guy you know first condemned trump has now become the most loyal sort of lapdog and lackey and like is always defending trump and occasionally he'll say something critical and then quickly back away and then be back on the bandwagon what do you think of the psychology of somebody like that well, he's really not the number one lapdog, the number one lapdog that sits by Trump at Mar-a-Lago on the floor as he strokes the back of his head is Ted Cruz. I mean, let's not forget what we did to Ted Cruz. And I, you know, I was involved in it. Not only did we put out the fake story through the National Enquirer, um, you know, the National Enquirer with David Pecker, when he came up with this photo of Ted Cruz's father with Lee Harvey Oswald at the time of the execution of John F. Kennedy. Uh, on top of that, you saw Trump actually attack Ted Cruz's wife's looks. Now, the why they do it? Because it's politically expedient for them. They know that without Trump's base, that they're fucked. That 2022 or 2024, whatever time that they have their specific election, they're going to lose their base. They're going to lose their job. And sadly, and I really mean this, sadly, they're going to allow the destruction of American democracy all in exchange for them keeping their seat, all in exchange for them being able to raise money for their political campaigns. And also, most importantly, like so many people that were involved in Trump's orbit, they also know that with Trump, favors are very easy to get if you play to a party of one. Kiss his ass, ask for a favor. Go out there and say crazy, nonsensical shit like Marjorie Taylor Greene, ask for a favor. Even people like Megyn Kelly, who I think is a disgrace as a reporter, even Megyn Kelly is now kissing Donald Trump's ass because she knows that she's basically washed up in media. So what is she going to do? She's going to now join the Trump News Network, ask for a major multi-million dollar contract, whether it's going to be on the platform of Newsmax or OANN. So this is her financial survival. And she's willing to turn around and to take all of the qualities that she exemplified over her years whether it was at Fox or on her own show, and she's tossing it in the garbage, knowing, knowing damn well that Trump is a cancer on this country and that she's now participating in it. It's all for personal gain and political expediency. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, uh, although there's an open question to me whether it's going to work for them, because I think unless Trump is on the ballot, I don't know if you get all those Trump fans coming out, because I think we saw that, in 2018, that if Trump is not on the ballot, a lot of these people, they're like, you know, low information voters. They're not really Republicans. They're, I mean, I think Trump's ability, his real talent was able to get out people who aren't regular voters, who like respond to his demagogic message, who respond to his kind of vitriol and his anger. Uh, but these are, um, 
But those voters only show up for Trump, I think. Uh, and so I think there's a real problem for the Republican Party that like they can kind of come close to winning. And let's be honest, the scary thing about 2020 is that in terms of the Electoral College, Trump nearly pulled it off. Like it's like within 40,000 votes in three states. So Trump is really the Republican Party needs him politically. But the, the other question is, like, without him, are they in real trouble without him on the ballot? Well, their position is that, no, look at the number of Republicans that either held their seat or were very, very close. So therefore, while people didn't vote for Trump at the top of the ticket, the down ballot remains Republican. So, you know, look, everybody that's the funny thing about these statistics of these polls that you constantly see. The funny thing is that they don't really mean anything and you can interpret them any way that you want. You know, the old methodology of polling and information as it's going by, it's so outdated and it's to me, it's worthless, which brings me to that whole uh, interesting says who scenario with Brianna Keeler, right, where I knew that the poll that she was talking about was nonsensical. And ultimately, I was right in what I said, considering Trump won in 2016. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember that very well. And people were like kind of mocking you and laughing at you. But <laughs> you're right. Like, <laughs> It's tough to mock somebody when they're right. Hate doing taxes? I know I do. And there are a lot of people out there who would love to do them for you. But I'm not talking about tax specialists. I'm talking about cyber criminals and identity thieves who are looking to steal your most precious financial information. During tax season, your personal info, like your name and social security number, may be emailed and shared more than usual. Criminals can steal info from your devices and sell it on the dark web or use it to commit other crimes, even years down the road. Tax season is a great time to be a cyber criminal, making it the best time to help protect yourself by using Norton 360 with LifeLock. I use it myself to protect my information from prying eyes and to practice good data security. This tax season, opt into cyber safety. Help protect against cyber criminals from stealing the info shared on your devices, spying on you over Wi-Fi, or stealing your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime or identity theft or monitor all transactions, but don't let cyber criminals make tax season extra taxing. Save 25% or more off your first year of Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. But, Jeet, in a piece for The Nation, who you write for yesterday, you posited that the brief GOP civil war is in fact over with Trumpism being the victor. Can you explain to me and my listeners how this fact was manifest in his CPAC speech and what the larger trends are to support a Trumpist GOP in the near future? Sure, yeah. I mean, like, you know, we saw that with the impeachment. As I mentioned before, there's only like, you know, 17 uh, Republicans in Congress that voted against them. And uh, Trump really used CPAC to assert dominance. And we saw that just by the way he was late. He was supposed to speak there at, you know, uh, 3.40. Uh, he was at Palm Beach. He didn't leave until like after two, meaning that, you know, he left knowing that he's going to be like, uh, more than an hour late, um, uh, going from, uh, Palm Beach to Orlando. And I think, you know, that's a kind of classic, like bad boss move. Like you keep someone waiting, right? You, 
you, you assert, like, I'm the one that you have to wait for. Uh, and then, as you mentioned in the speech, he really went after all of the 17 people there. And then the crowd was, you know, cheering him on. Um, and then, uh, you know, he polled well at CPAC. They do a straw poll. And, you know, some people are saying it was only 55%. But, like, he did twice as well, more than twice as well as the next major person. And I think more importantly, all the themes in the CPAC, you know, this major conservative conference, you know, people there weren't talking about the traditional, like, let's balance the budget. All the themes in that um, CPAC were like, you know, voter fraud, uh, let's build a wall. Everyone sounded like Trump. And I think that the um, all the politicians in the Republican Party, you know, even if Trump, I don't, I'm not sure that he's going to run again in 2024. But everyone else, uh, even if he doesn't run, whoever runs is going to sound exactly like Trump. Well, they're going to try to, sure. Yeah, I don't think anyone else has quite Trump's like charisma or ability to like you know attract those voters. And what you kind of see is like these kind of pathetic wannabes, like um, like Josh Hawley. Yeah, jo- Josh Hawley, uh, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz. They're all trying to sound like Trump, and they. I mean, like you know, like whenever you have a big band, like when Springsteen was huge in the eighties. You saw all these like kind of mini Springsteens springing up and they didn't have the juice. You know, they're a substitute. They're the kind of, you know, what you pay for when you can't buy a Springsteen ticket. And that, right. So Gene, I got it. Gene, I got to stop you on that one because Springsteen is still hot. Even, yeah, even to hot. this day, this guy, this guy's going to live on, you know, in infamy forever and ever. I mean, yeah, yeah. he just gets hotter year after year after year. And yet. You know, whether he's getting older, as we all do, um, it doesn't make a difference. His fan base is just there. But, you know, you and I actually make a very common mistake in terms of verbiage. We talk about the impeachment. Actually, Donald Trump was impeached for the second time. What he wasn't was convicted. And I always say this, and I've said this on my Twitter feed more times than I care to mention, that there are not 17 courageous Republicans out there that were willing to convict Donald Trump. You know, it's a difference between the impeachment. That, of course, was the House. And you need the Senate in order to convict. Um, it's sad. It, to me, it was really sad. Because if you looked at what was going on and you just look at what Donald Trump, his son Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani, Josh Hawley, and so many others did in terms of inciting this insurrection... It's so easy to put one in one will always equal two. And Donald Trump was the gaslighter. He did blow his dog whistle for his MAGA supporters to come out there because his true intent was to take over the Capitol. I know this is going to sound somewhat crazy. We talk about it a lot on this podcast. Donald Trump wants to be a monarch. He doesn't want to be the president. He wants to be an autocrat, wants to be just like Putin. And it's not like he studies history like Putin, who's a master of history, who actually reads and reads a lot and studies his opponent. Donald Trump thinks he's going to walk in there like he would walk into the set of the fucking apprentice and take over and everybody, you know, bend over and kiss my fat ass. It doesn't work that way. But, you know, you also mentioned about his tactics and his tactics are not new. At least they're not for me. Do you know how many times we used to keep people waiting? It's common for Trump because in his crazy head, he believes that 
Making people wait for you builds up anxiety and enthusiasm. And then they would get people coming on the stage, start cheering, we want Trump, we want Trump. And then all of a sudden, they're like, okay, Donald will be here in 10 minutes, 10 minutes, right? So the people start going crazy for him. And then he builds them into a fervor. And I want you to think, considering you're Canadian, look, he did the exact same thing to your queen. You remember he kept her waiting outside. This is a woman who's been monarch now for what? 75 yeah. years, give yeah, or take? Because I was in the early 50s. So yeah, I think uh, about 70 years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 70 years? I mean, he kept this woman waiting in her own country, in front of her own home, in the heat, because he thought it was cool to keep the queen waiting. Because who is she? Right? He goes, compared to me, she's nothing. I'm richer than she is. I'm smarter than she is. Right? I'm the president of the United States. I hold the nuclear football. That's what's going on in this crazy sociopath's mind, which is truly scary. And what scares me even more are the crazy Americans that keep promoting him and promoting him like standing in front of that pagan idol waiting in order to take a photo with it, no different than, you know, reminiscent photos from the Bible. Yes. No, that's, yep. a, that's exactly right. I, I, it's a dominance move, and I think he, I mean, I think we're kind of in, in agreement that he's kind of really dominated the Republican Party, has continued to do so. I mean, we have to give credit where credit is due. Some of them have started to stand up to him, but it's very few. And I think, I mean, I think that was very telling that Mitch McConnell said if Trump is the nominee in 2024, he'll support him. Now, McConnell also has said, like, well, Trump instigated the uh, riots on January 6th. So you're saying that you're going to support the guy who, you know, by your own words, instigated the riot. That's that's like an amazing kind of thing. And I think he's um, successfully dominated, humiliated, subdued, whatever word you want to use, the Republican Party. Uh, unfortunately, I mean... That's the only place you can kind of see that this is any hope of like any change that you have to have the Republicans break with Trump. But I, I don't see that. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think right. well, Mitch McConnell is a complete loser. But yeah. I think people are reading what he was saying inaccurately, to be honest with you. I think what he was saying is if Donald Trump becomes the nominee, of course he's going to support him. He's the nominee of his party. And Mitch McConnell, like the rest of them, are a bunch of spineless assholes that really, truly don't care about democracy. They don't care about this country. They care about their own job. So what's he going to do? Mitch McConnell, the highest ranking Republican, is going to support the Democrat running against the Republican nominee? It's stupid to think that he would do anything else other than that because again it's not about america it's about their jobs it's about their grifting off off of our country and off of our people but gee i want to ask you who do you see as the future of this trumpist wing if you had to fear the next donald trump would it be somebody like ron desantis or somebody more old guard like tom cotton yeah i i think that desantis actually like unfortunately really impressed me as, you know, someone who kind of has the political chops. I mean, the thing with Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or like Ted Cruz, I think Ted Cruz has destroyed himself just by, you know, like running away to Cancun, uh, you know, during an emergency. But in general, like Ted Cruz, you know, like there's a certain type of 
a hard right evangelical that likes Ted Cruz, but like most people, he kind of puts off. I, I, I think DeSantis has that kind of, you know, that macho bravado, I'm a tough guy thing, and the dominant personality. I, I think if I had to pick anyone, it would be him. Uh, the only other option I can think of is some sort of media personality, but I don't know who it would be, like Tucker Carlton. I, I actually think that pillow guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mike like, Lindell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he wanted to, if he wanted to, I think he would energize a lot of those evangelicals because he has that story that like kind of. I was a heroin addict that now came back from the depths of, you know, despair and the redemption story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he has this. I was just watching a clip. I'm watching a video of him speaking at an evangelical thing. And there's like 50,000 people in the audience. He was like really, you know, doing that Bible thumping, you know, I have sinned and Jesus saved me. And I thought like, well, this guy, you know, he has some sort of stage presence. And uh, as you know, like this is like a big thing. We live in a media age and the person that has that kind of media charisma can do it. And I think, I mean, for me, the good thing is, you know, someone like Holly or Cotton or Cruz, they just come across terribly. On TV, they kind of, there's a reason why they lost, the uh, Cruz lost the, uh, Trump. I don't think, uh, he quite has the juice. That's where I'm kind of looking towards. Like, you have to, like, it has to be someone who has that media charisma. And the funniest thing is Trump took the most pleasure, believe it or not, out of all of the 17 Republicans that stood on the stage, uh, trying to become the Republican nominee. Donald Trump took the most pleasure out of eviscerating and denigrating Ted Cruz. Yeah. He really did. I'll never forget when I brought into him the photo and the front page <laughs> in advance of the National Enquirer that David Pecker and Dylan Howard had sent to me um, to show him for approval, which I thought was amazing. Um, I remember him saying to me, do you think this is true? And I said, uh, look, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, you know, it doesn't make sense. He goes, does it matter? It'll be on the front page everywhere. He goes, what's he supposed to say? There's no good answer, right? If he says, no, 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 then we just turn around and we go on the offensive and say, of course he's lying. His father killed John F. Kennedy, right? And if he says, yes, he goes, he sunk. So it's sort of like, you know, the old expression, you, do you beat your wife on Mondays or Tuesdays? There's just no good answer to something like that in terms of a question. Well, but, there's the old Ben Johnson story of... Uh how he wanted to release information that his competitor was a, a pig fucker. And they said, well, like, that's not true. And he said, make him deny it. <laughs> you know, you make him- exactly, exactly. But yesterday in a tweet, you wrote that, and this is the tweet, people who think potatoes have to have a gender are not. I would insist, motivated by science. Now, your position here, I assume, is based on the hubbub around Mr. Potato Head, yes. so-called <laughs> cancellation that was widely discussed at CPAC. It seems that this constant drumbeat around cancel culture is a part of a much larger refrain of Republican victimhood that seems to rally the base more than any single issue. Discuss this with me. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at CPAC, well, you just beyond that, you look at everything that's going on. It's all that's all they're talking about. Cancel culture. And we're talking we're living at a time where like in America, you know, we have a pandemic that's killed more than half a million people. And we've had like tremendous economic problems. You have foreign policy problems coming out of China and uh, and Europe. 
they're not talking about any of that. Maybe a little bit China, but really they're talking about these cultural issues. And I think it's partially, this is part of what I mean by saying that the party has become Trumpized. Trump has shown them that you can like, if you just have these fights over like symbols and um, words, uh, that can ag uh, agitate people. And you don't have to have a president that actually like cares about policy, that cares about, you know, like trying to get the masks out, getting the vaccines out, uh, giving people good instructions for the pandemic. Well, like he's really transformed politics into entertainment. And that's why they want to talk about, you know, Mr. Potato, like, which is like, to my, I mean, I have three kids and like, you know, they, the, the thing with the potato is you can make it whatever. You can make it into a boy or a girl. It's a potato. It's, it's like a plastic toy. <laughs> so, but, 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 but yeah, they have a certain base of people that are very anxious and that they can feed their anxieties, which are based on real things, but feed those anxieties into these symbolic battles. Um, and I think that's very bad for America. Uh, it's bad for the world. I mean, you want, you know, the United States to be a strong country that's like well governed. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I don't see that ending anytime soon. But gee, you're a hundred percent correct. This cancel culture is the, really the predominant issue of the Republican party, because what Donald Trump does is he plays on people's fears mm -hmm. as his white base, right? This Southern white Christian coalition. What they want is they want status quo. Yeah. They were happy with the way things were. Now, I'm not saying that there are aspects of it that are wrong, but I just believe that we have an obligation to give everyone their fair share in America, right? Now, going to your comment about the vaccine and 500 plus thousand deaths as a result, here's some interesting things. First and foremost, Donald Trump had no plan to roll out the vaccine, despite the fact that our fucking idiot in chief decide our former idiot in chief decided, right, that he needs the Nobel Peace Prize for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And yet he ignores the fact that he stood up and so did Mike Pence, right, um, you know, stating that it's one person, it'll be gone in a day or two. But here's something that's interesting that a lot of people don't realize. Donald Trump actually wants the death numbers to climb. And he wants the death numbers to climb. I see that you're giving me a funky look. Here's the reason why. If the death numbers climb, he could now blame the Biden administration and use that as a talking point to grift more from this base, this solid base of his. You say, I had it under control. Everything was going great, right? He creates his own reality. And in all fairness, he's happy to see that there's a new strain that's coming in. And he's actually in his mind hoping that the vaccination is not strong enough to fight off the new strain of the virus so that more people die. And he can claim that I told you that Biden was no good. Right. Yeah. But you didn't believe me. Right. And he's going to ride that not to run because I'm with you. He's not running in 2024. Yeah. He's just going to grift off. And if he's successful in continuing to do, meaning raising the amounts of money that he's been raising, he'll raise a billion dollars for his whatever fucking type of fund that it is, which he, of course, is basing off of the former Clinton Foundation that allows him to use the vast bulk of it for whatever he wants. And you're right when you said that this is the best business he's ever been in. 
I mean, think about it. He basically puts out, well, it's not a tweet anymore because he was thrown out, but he puts out a message, right? I need everybody. And they're still doing it to people's cell phones, their text messages and so on, right? Support $10. Now we need the next 50,000 people and you'll get some piece of paper, garbage Trump card that says that you're a supporter and we'll send it to you in a year. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's just collecting a war chest, not for politics, for his own self-interest. But Jeet, also on February 23rd, you wrote an amazing piece about the Bazell family and their embodiment of reactionary lawlessness, which, <laughs> which spans union busting to cross burning. All of this stems from the arrest of Brent Bozel in the Capitol riot. Now, can you explain to my listeners who the Bozel family is and why you chose to write about them? Sure, yeah, yeah. Albrecht Bozell IV was arrested at the part of the riot. But uh, if you can guess by his name, there's been three other Albrecht Bozells. And the, the first Albrecht Bozell organized like sort of union busting uh, activities in the 30s. His son was a real um, hardline anti-communist brother-in-law of William F. Buckley. And he was responsible for some of the, he, he did the first anti-abortion protest where they actually like attacked clinics and like, you know, like broke down the doors of clinics. Uh, and his wife famously tried to slap a feminist uh, for, who was speaking at a Catholic college. The son, uh, the El Brent Fazel III, which people might have seen on TV, you know, has egged on the beating of a reporter. And he also like, you know, called Obama a skinny ghetto uh, kid. Uh, so, so, so this is a family. So this is my, my sort of way of saying, you know, like it's not just like Trump or one generation. This is like, you know, th- there's a part of the Republican fa- Party the hard right that's always been there, and now they've come to the fore. Well, that's because Donald Trump has brought them to the fore with his racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic rants. I mean, that's really what this man has done. He has given people the opportunity to let their full racist shit out. Right. Whatever that thing is that you might have been holding. Well, I don't believe in immigrants coming to this country. I don't believe in Jews. Right. Because Jews will not replace us. I don't believe in allowing, um, you know, homosexuals uh, in the army or transgenders or whatnot. Right. This is what Donald Trump does. And successfully, he doesn't come right out and just fucking say it. What he does is he skirts around it. This is no good. We can't allow this. Fight, 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 etc. But the people who are listening to him are interpreting the words in the way that they want to interpret it. And he knows how they're going to interpret it. And it's just, it's just Donald Trump. It's just who he is. It's, it's really hard to imagine that the man has really denigrated the office of the presidency of the United States to the extent that he has. Yeah. Now, on February 26th, you tweeted, you know, we do a lot of investigation work here as we're, you know, interviewing so that we stay online. I appreciate that you've been uh, reading my work. This is, this is an honor. Well, it's terrible just to sit here and to talk about nothing, right? Well, especially you have a lot of things to say, and they're actually incredibly relevant. My listeners are anxious to hear this. So on February 26th, you tweeted the following about Saudi Arabia. And by the way, I just followed you on Twitter. Um, so you tweeted the following about Saudi Arabia. Trump helped cover up Mohammed bin Salman's crimes and let him get away with the with murder. Um, Biden has made public Mohammed bin Salman's crimes and let him get away with murder. 
Now, would you call that progress, right? Can you unpack what the Trump relationship with the kingdom was and why? And then help me understand why Joe Biden has let Ben Salman off the hook as well. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think this is actually, I mean, people talk about like Russiagate and stuff like that. But I mean, Trump had, you know, a wide variety of corrupt relations with like, you know, these uh, very bad governments all over the world. Uh, and one of them that I think hasn't gotten enough attention is Saudi Arabia, where like, you know, the Saudi princes were like spending huge amounts of money at the Trump Hotel. And there was some sort of business deals with Jared Kushner of uh, buying his property. And then, yeah, Trump... Um, uh, and, and like, uh, you know, the crown prince, uh, clearly felt like he could do anything. And like, he, you know, what he did, it should never, we should never forget this. You know, like, um, uh, Jamal, uh, uh, Khashoggi was an American, uh, permanent resident and, you know, like he was kidnapped in Turkey and dismembered. And, you know, like the Trump administration covered it up. Um, so I, I think that there, there's a lot of room there for a lot of investigation. Um, into Trump's like financial dealings and what happened. Now, unfortunately, it's also the case that Saudi Arabia has had long-standing, you know, ties with the United States and has seen an ally. And I think it's going to be very hard. The Biden administration, to give them credit, they are pushing back on certain areas. They're like, sort of, um, it looks like they're going to like, you know, try to, uh, tampen down the war in Yemen. Um, and uh, they released this, they released the report that clearly shows um, uh, that the crown prince was responsible. But I think that it's going to be hard for Biden, uh, because there are a lot of vested interests in America. The Saudi government has, you know, given a lot of money to American think tanks. Uh, they buy a lot of American weapons. Uh, there's a lot of vested interests that we you know, don't want to see the relationship change. And I think that's going to be a real struggle. Uh, but I, I do think that, uh, one good thing is I think people in Congress, uh, politically, like there's, there's, there's a lot of like movement. In public opinion, I don't think Saudi Arabia is very popular in public opinion. You're right. They're not. I think people need to push Biden on this. And I think the push could be successful. But I mean, I think Biden is caught between this kind of American establishment that really is tied to Saudi Arabia and has a lot of financial ties with Saudi Arabia and the general public, which, you know, like sees us like, you know, regime with a theocracy. They kill people all the time and uh, they get trying to get American entangled in these wars. And I, I think that I think public opinion could really push Biden on this. Well, I think Biden is going to have to do it. Actually, I don't think it. I'm basically restating what Biden said during the campaign, that if he's guilty, they have to um, be sanctioned, that there has to be some repercussion. Because yeah. you're right, Jamal Khashoggi was a U.S. citizen. He held a U.S. passport. On, on a personal note, he happens to be the cousin of a girl who I've been friendly with for 40 years. Oh, okay. And I can tell you that... Um, I think what obviously happened to him is an absolute disgrace. Now, I could understand how Trump would overlook it because Trump doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. And the relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner yeah. was obviously a very unholy alliance. You're talking about, you know, two children of incredibly wealthy men getting together as the power couple, right? Jared running off to Saudi, not staying in Riyadh, but going completely by himself to a farm that's owned by Mohammed bin Salman, by the family, that's unaccompanied and it's not documented. So nobody really knows what was going on there, what was being discussed. But here's where Kushner is a fucking moron. Yeah, You want me to tell you? 
I know the Saudis. I actually represented before working for Trump. I represented one of the members of the royal family, one of the wealthiest Saudis out there. Um, and I became very close with his son, um, you know, but for all of this nonsense, when his father was taken to the Ritz-Carlton, I think yeah. I was the second phone call that he made trying to figure out what the hell was happening. And he was actually out of the country because if he was in the country, he never would have been able to call me because all their phones are tapped. Um, but what Jared doesn't realize, again, because he's Jared's arrogant beyond arrogant. What he doesn't realize is Mohammed bin Salman doesn't need him anymore. He offers jack shit. So at the end of the day, he's going to drop Kushner like a brick. For what reason? You think that Mohammed bin Salman, after everything that happened with Khashoggi, is now going to be doing some back-end side hidden deals with Kushner? For what reason? The guy's, the guy's controlling the entire economy of Saudi Arabia. He doesn't need Kushner for anything. He needed Kushner when dad, when, you know, when father-in-law Donald was the president. Now that he has no power there, what the hell does he need him for? He doesn't. And the Saudis are very quick to cut you off. The Saudis are very much like Donald. They go where the power is, which is very much the same as Putin. Putin doesn't give a shit about Trump. Now, I think he'd like to know some of the secrets that Trump obviously has in his head. But after those secrets are, you know, are expunged from him, he doesn't need him anymore. And so he would send him probably off to a gulag to go lose 100 pounds. <laughs> Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and you want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last Thursday's episode with Stanford neuroscientist David Eagleman, who tells the story of the ever-changing brain. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and found this December 2019 interview with a former KGB spy in America. It was absolutely fascinating. There's an episode for everyone, though no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a recent piece, you also wrote about COVID, and you posited that the pandemic has energized collective action on both the left and the right. Can you discuss with me the larger themes that have emerged from the lockdown that are moving the left and the right the greatest? And what do you think will be the long-term result? Sure, yeah. I mean, the thing is, in COVID, we're all like kind of isolated 
and uh, in our uh, homes. But in some ways, it's a shared isolation, and we all kind of have a shared experience. And then people are also connecting a lot. I find this myself. I, you know, I'm on social media, and uh, but people uh, are reading a lot more or communicating a lot more, uh, and trying to, you know, there's big problems out there. Now, on the right, I think COVID, QAnon predates COVID. But uh, COVID really helped QAnon. You had a lot of people that were kind of stuck at home. Trump was, you know, putting up uh, messages that were pro-QAnon or, you know, kind of, uh, as you said, dog whistles. Uh, and then they spread like wildfire as a kind of, you know, general explanation of what's wrong. Uh, and I think a lot of the the um, mobile stuff that we've seen of like the uh, anti-masking protests, the attacks on the Capitol building, uh, not, on, not just in Washington, but in some of the states, that's all been kind of like organized coming out of this new, you know, COVID world. And then also, you know, like on the other side, you know, like all the, there's been a lot of sit down strikes, a lot of like, you know, uh, organizing the Black Lives Matter movement, which again predates COVID, but then had a kind of like a new burst of life during this period. So I think, you know, we're definitely going to be, I think, entering into a period of a lot more sort of activism and street politics and people really um, on both sides. Uh, and I think it's going to be a re- it's going to be an interesting challenge uh, to Biden to kind of navigate through that world. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think he's you know like doing okay so far, but I mean, I think that's I think that's the reality that we're not going to go back to a quiet world, right? Where you know people wanted like let's go back to normal, let's have brunch. I, I just don't see that. I think like so much has changed, and there's been so much like sort of you know trauma and the whole experience of the last year of the you know the lockdowns and the quarantine and the isolation, I think has really changed people. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, the, in ways bad and good, right? The bad thing is that's given the demagogue like Donald Trump kind of like a new lease on life. This is a new thing he can kind of agitate on. But I think it's also, you know, you, you see a lot of um, mutual help. You see, you know, people trying to organize in good ways. Yeah, except the problem, though, is the left and the right are so diametrically opposed today where... Let's, for example, say the Black Lives Matter group, the organization, they were marching, say, downtown in Manhattan, and they were doing it peacefully. Now, yes, there were a group that came to the Black Lives Matter movement. Nobody has ever been able to emphatically state that they were part of the movement because they were not. They were agitators looking for a benefit off of what was going on. You can't control that, right? So what did they do? They started breaking into stores, the Best Buys. They started stealing telephones and televisions and so on. But yet then the far right, the Fox News junkies, they all start saying that this is just who they are. This is a Black Lives Matter thing. It's not about um, getting their point across that Black Lives Matter and that they should be given an equal opportunity in this country, but rather, right, that they're just a bunch of hoods and hooligans that are, you know, that are looking to create damage, to burn down buildings and to steal shit, which is absolutely not true. The Black Lives Matter group were up front. They peacefully painted onto the ground. They were entitled to and so on. And then what happens? The far right sends in their group in order to fight them, right? And claim everybody's Antifa. The whole thing is really out of control. And the biggest problem is you're right. Trump left Biden a shit sandwich. But I do agree with you. I think Biden's doing all that he can do right now. And the most important thing that he needs to do is he needs to staff the cabinet, right? Quick, 
quickly. He needs to get his people in there. Get Trump's fucking people out of there as quickly as you possibly can because they're, they're, they're a toxic and they're a cancer on this society. And you need to then go ahead and continue, which is what Biden is doing. Got to get the vaccination into the arms of people. And I think they're doing it successfully. I mean, think about it this way. Now that you have Pfizer, you have Moderna, and then you have Johnson & Johnson. Merck just claimed that they're now going to take um, one of them. I think it's Pfizer or Moderna, uh, and they're going to mass produce it in coordination with their competitor. And that's what they should do under the, you know, under the War Productions Act. You know, you're entitled to do that. You could actually commandeer everyone's equipment because this is a national pandemic. But the nice part is once we finish inoculating this country, there will be this ongoing continuous creation of the vaccine so that we can send it to countries like Canada, a third world country. Um, you know, we can send it to <laughs> my half. My, I told you half my family lives yeah. in Toronto. Uh, you know, we can send it to other countries. Something I spoke to Alyssa Milano about um, at great length on this podcast. You know, we have an obligation um, you yeah. know, America has an obligation, you know, to help the world. It's actually in everyone's interest to get, you know, the whole world inoculated as soon as possible. Because the thing with vaccine with uh, viruses is that they mutate. And you don't want a situation where there's some country where they didn't get it and it mutates and you get a new virus, overcome the existing vaccine. So we really have to get everyone in the world vaccinated as soon as possible. But you're right. I think the Johnson & Johnson thing for me is the best news just because uh, you just have to be stored in the cold and you can, uh, you can use existing equipment. You don't have to make these, uh, you know, new equipment. So I really feel like in the next few months, we're going to see such a ramping up of production as you've never seen before. You know, it'd be really like World War II where, you know, like, you know, FDI said, you know, like, you know, we got to uh, arm the English, arm the Russians. And, you know, you just got factories springing up overnight. Uh, it's just going to be like that. Yeah. Look, I hope so. Um, and she, I want to switch gears for a moment, and I want you, please, to talk with me about Andrew Cuomo. Now, Cuomo had this moment last spring and briefly emerged as a national leader with people whispering that they would wish and they were praying that they could nominate him as opposed to Joe Biden to run against Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, Obviously, in recent weeks, though, between the nursing home scenario, the sexual harassment scandals, he's revealed himself to be this operatic, compromised individual. Now, Fox and the GOP are gleefully reporting on every aspect of this scandal, obviously. I mean, that doesn't come yeah. as a surprise to anybody. But so much of Cuomo's liabilities seem to be of his own making. Discuss this with me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was never like, you know, uh, of this sort of, uh, cult of, uh, Como, except, I mean, I think certain things he was in a really, I mean, I'm sympathetic to like all the leaders who try to do something, uh, just because, you know, this virus, you know, uh, is a nat natural calamity. And in the early days, we didn't have a lot of information. He's a little bit slower than maybe he should have been, but he was dealing with that. But then it was also the case that, you know, he has that, personality type that um, he's always had it and it's really come to the fore of being, being a bit of a bully, being a bit of a like, you know, my way or the highway uh, and then, you know, like these other allegations um, uh, the sexual harassment uh, have come out, but I mean, I, I think that, and unfortunately, I mean, I think one of the things that he did, which we, I think uh, other people have done 
here in Canada, we've we've seen this with uh, in Ontario. There's a desire to protect the kind of old folks' homes and to protect them from like you know uh, liability. And I think that that was like a you know a political mistake. Uh, I think that you know um, yeah. I, I, honestly, I think he has. He's probably gonna have to resign sometime soon. I think that like of course Fox News is gonna go after him. But I think one thing that this shows is the difference between the two parties. Because, you know, like once the evidence started to come out against Como, you really saw, see a lot of Democrats coming out against them and, uh, including in the state legislature and like really pushing back and calling for investigations. You know, that's totally opposite of the Trump era where the Republicans in Congress, in the House and in the Senate, they protected Trump every step of the way. Uh, so I really think that, you know, uh, I think it's a sign of strength, not weakness that the Democrats, you know, like if they have one of their guys who, you know, isn't living up to the standard, isn't doing what they should, they'll, they're willing to hold him accountable. And I think he has to be held accountable. Well, I agree. He has to be held accountable, but I think we have to allow the process to take its course. Yes, yes, yes. If there's an investigation, let the investigation go forward. Let him continue to work for the American people because that's his job. But in the interim, let the process take through. And if, in fact, these allegations are accurate, he needs to be held responsible. Yeah. But let's at least allow the process to work out yeah. instead of basically just condemning him immediately off the bat. Now, I'm not excusing any of the allegations, nor am I commenting about the truthfulness of them. I'm just saying that there should be an investigation, and that's what he wants. That's what, you know, the other Democrats want, and they're going to push for it. And whatever the truth is, the truth will, you know, have its consequences one way or the other. I think, like, in terms of all the Trump stuff and relating to it, I mean, I think the difference is really interesting. That, you know, we are going to have a real investigation. And I think that's the way you have to do it. You have to have the due process. And I think with the Trump, the whole problem was, is, you know, he had a whole party behind him that resisted, you know, investigation. Uh, and I think that's the way forward, uh, you know, in the firm for America in general, like beyond Trump. Like you always have to have, you know, if there are like allegations of wrongdoing, you have to look into them and you have to have a process and, you know, like let the evidence come out. Yeah. It's very, it's important. I'm glad you bring that up because I'm also curious what you make of the current, this bullshit, fake fucking outrage around Neera Tandon and the so-called divisive tweets. I don't understand in what galaxy these jerk-off senators can take issue with what she wrote after four years of fucking Donald Trump's tweets. And I know what it's like better than anybody. I know what it's like because he tweeted shit against me and my family that caused harm greater than anybody can imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy. And in some ways, they're trying to use Biden's unity talk to kind of take down one of his candidates and say, well, you say you want unity. Uh, yeah, but if you look at Nira Tandon's tweets, um, there's like, there's not a lot there that's, uh, uh, really like that. Terrible. I mean, she's like a kind of, you know, uh, a partisan Democrat, but not even a partisan Democrat. She often welcomed Republicans, uh, you know, who wanted to work against Trump. She was like basically just, you know, very strongly, passionately anti-Trump. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Uh, I wouldn't want to, you know, like, and I think for her to be denied this job because of the tweets just seems ridiculous. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like a bad joke and it really highlights just how Trump was never held accountable. Now, the fact that Trump was never held accountable doesn't mean that other people shouldn't be held accountable as well. If there's something that comes out about her that's comparable to Trump, 
sure, but there's nothing. She's not in the same galaxy as Trump. Uh, so let's just put it, let's just put it that way. Uh, actually, can we circle back to something where you had mentioned Mike Pence uh, and how he and Trump aren't talking? You have some idea, any idea, like what does Trump think of Mike Pence? Well, truth be told, he never thought much of him, even yeah. from the very beginning. There were he was not his first choice. Yeah. He became, in all fairness, his only choice. He needed to declare a vice president. Many people walked away from him not believing that Trump had a chance of winning, and they did not want to put themselves in a box with the birther in chief, figuring that they didn't know, you know how it would play out for them. Again, it's always about them. They're all fucking self-motivated. It's all about them keeping their positions, their power, being able to grift off of the country and they did not want. So Mike Pence, you know, came in and they won. And something that Donald remind him of on a regular, regular basis, and I've seen it personally when I was still in good with the administration, your vice president, not because you brought anything to the table, but because of me. And that's why when Mike Pence didn't come out and do the things that Donald, that King Donald wanted, like get down in front, like get down in front of the gold pagan Donald, right? And kiss his feet, right? Or turn it around and kiss the golden ass. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what he was not just wanting from Mike Pence. It's what he was expecting. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. a big difference for Donald Trump. But, you know, going back to Tandon for one second, because certain outlets like MSNBC have turned Tandon into this progressive champion, right? But in actuality, her real relationship with the progressive wing of the party is actually quite complicated and that she has a she's a quite a large number of detractors on the left from her own criticism of Bernie Sanders during the 2016 primary. Can you unravel all of this for my listeners and also tell me what's a Nirabot? <laughs> okay. So, um the First of all, I, I think to really understand Nira Tandon, you don't have to think in terms of like left, right, or ideology, but just personality and personal loyalty. He was really, she came into the uh, American politics as a, you know, student during the Clinton White House and worked with Hillary Clinton. And, um, the, uh, Nira Tandon's mom was interviewed at the New York Times and said, Nira will always defend Hillary because Hillary's the one that made Nira. And so it's that personal relationship. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, they're very close. They are still very close. And, you know, Nira, if Hillary Clinton had won, Nira would have, Tandon would have been the chief of, um, staff. She would have had a very senior position. And so everything about Tandon is through that prism that she was a very fierce Hillary Clinton supporter. And so went after Bernie, like a lot. And I don't think it's because she's anti-progressive or anything like that. It's just like, you know, Bernie's a rival. Um, and that created a lot of bad blood. Uh, but I think it's also the case that on Twitter, you kind of create these kind of like tribes and she created people. And there's a kind of group of people I call Nirabots who I think are actually in some ways, like if you talk about mean tweets, they're like much worse than Nira. I don't think anything Tandon has actually said to me is beyond the lines of reason, you know, like, you know, just strong opinion, you know, like, like we're talking, right? You're forceful as you should, as you should be. But I think she has some followers that are very toxic and very poisonous, and there are people who take 
kind of like look to her as her. And I, I sort of have used the phrase neurobots, which maybe might be a little bit unfair or whatever, but still like, it's just like this, this kind of thing where like, if she gets criticized, they go after the people who criticize her. And I think that that's part of like, you know, but Trump had that as well, right? Like there's all these MAGA heads and like, you know, it's not just like he attacks you, but if he attacks you, then like, you know, like hundreds of other people are going to be go after you as well. But I do think that this contributes to some of the, you know, uh, political tension. But in general, politically, I mean, I think Tandon is just like a Democrat. Like, and that's why I think she'd be like a good person on this position, even though I don't necessarily agree with all her politics, but she's very fiercely loyal to whoever she works for. Uh, but in a, in a good way, like she'll do whatever she can. That's like, you know, legitimate. And so like, she'll be in that position and she'll like really try to execute Joe Biden's policies. And I, I think that's good. I mean, he was elected president. He needs people that are loyal to him and will carry it up, but not loyal in a kind of, you know, like mafia way that Trump wanted, but loyal just in a sense of a public policy way that this is what the president wants. And I'm going to carry out his policy. But but gee, it's not hundreds of people attacking you when Trump would send out one of these angry tweets about someone. It's millions. Yeah. You see, that's the whole thing that people didn't understand. The man had a social media platform of 100 million people. Now, what even Donald himself never realized because he's semi brain dead. What he didn't realize is the fact that not everybody that follows you is a fan is a supporter. Many of them don't particularly like you, and all they want is to join your social media platform so that they can say fuck you whenever you put out some sort of a tweet. That's just that's just part of the Twitter game. But he doesn't realize just how dangerous, or maybe he does, and he's using it in order to stoke this fire, right, to be able to blow his MAGA whistle and get his supporters, the ones that do support him onto it. But she said something interesting regarding Tandon uh, about not knowing. I don't know her specific policies, but and I've referred to this several times on this show when I said that uh, Ed Koch, the famous mayor here in New York, had a very famous saying, if you agree with my um, with my policy eight out of 10 times, you should vote for me. But if you agree with me 12 out of 12 times, you should see a psychiatrist. (laughs) And it makes a lot of sense if you break it down. You're not supposed to agree with every single thing because you and I will never agree on everything. My wife and I don't agree on everything. I'm not even sure I agree with myself 12 out of 12 times. Right. So, you know, it makes sense if you agree with important things that she stands for, then you vote for her. And if you don't, you vote her out for the person that more is in line. And that's where we're losing this country. This far left and this far right are so diametrically opposed to one another that there's not even the ability to get together and to talk about things that are so important that this country desperately needs like a fucking COVID relief package. I mean, for God's sakes, there's, there should not be a politician in Washington, right? Working for the people on the dime of the people that don't understand that there are people that don't have food on their table, that they can't pay for their electricity, that they can't pay for heat, right? I mean, this is this is absolutely disgraceful. And it's the obligation of our country, of our government, who we support with our taxes, 
It's their obligation to take care of us when we can't take, you know, we can't take care of ourselves. But, you know, um, gee, let me ask you this now. The root cause of culture wars is, in my opinion, the simple fact that under the liberal democracy groups, that they can agitate to change their condition and dominant groups can organize to resist producing a um, a cycle of reform and reaction. Now, of course, this goes back to the abolitionists and the early feminists. Can you unpack for me how these culture wars are manifest right now on both the left and the right? Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, I was uh, trying to speak about, like, trying to think broadly about where they come from. And I think we've always had culture wars in America uh, and throughout the world. It's part of democratic politics. Certainly like things like issues like immigration, uh, uh, you know, have always been polarizing. Like people, you know, like who are now uh, Trump supporters, very nationalist, uh, very like, you know, let's keep the foreigners out. Their own grandparents, when they came here, you know, were, were told the same thing by white Anglo-Saxon Americans. Uh, so, so I, I do think that the, um, the culture wars, as I see it, are part of, you know, like you just have, natural social change and people are pushing for agitating for that and sometimes they go too far uh you know like there's stuff that you know like you and i would might disagree with or whatever but then i think that politicians like trump like try to like turn that what should be a discussion into a tribal thing because if you have a tribal war of us versus them they're threatening us they're not letting us say merry christmas or uh, they're saying we should say latinx instead of latino and they're trying to destroy america and then you turn it into like, you know, the immigrants are destroying, you know, the country. It becomes very bad and dangerous or it's a China virus. And so then you suddenly see a, a surprise, an upturn of like, you know, attacks on Chinese, Asian Americans. Uh, so I think it's really like what the two things are going on is you have a, you know, natural cultural evolution that you would have in a large country with, uh, you know, which has always been diverse, which has never been like, you know, just one people. It's always had different cultures in contact, you know, navigating, negotiating. And then you have a few uh, uh, political figures that really want to, like, you know, like, use that as a way to, like, create tribes and to uh, gain power for themselves. And, you know, I mean, you see that, like, with figures, and I think the word you use, grift, is exactly right. But you have, you know, for someone like Trump or before Rush Limbaugh, is always a kind of grift. You can, if you get people scared of the uh, uh, immigrants or of the trans people, uh, they'll send you money. And like, you know, it's better than working, right? It's better than working for a living. <laughs> right. You know, it's very interesting that people forget this because uh, it really has not been widely publicized. But my, I believe that I had read somewhere that the individual that created the COVID vaccination for Pfizer, I believe, is a foreign, is an American, but he's a foreigner that is now a naturalized U.S. citizen. So it's interesting. Now, tell, of course, Elon Musk that he shouldn't be here. But the funniest thing is, as you stated, you know, my father is from Poland, you know, so I'm first generation American, but so is Donald Trump. Yeah. That's what makes it so funny, right? His mother was from Scotland and his grandfather on the father's side is German. Right. So it's just very interesting that, you know, he takes that position that we need to be anti-immigrant because truth be told, there's a very small percentage of this American population that is 
indigenous to this country and they're not treated too well either right now. But you know, Jeet, as we're winding down our hour, I have just one last question for you here. One of the biggest threats to democracy remains Facebook and other social platforms that allow the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation and other toxic speech to spread and spread just wildly and out of control. Discuss with me what you believe the answer is to fixing what Facebook and others um, has wrought. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that um, we've kind of seen this with like, uh, or, you know, with just the way that Trump was deplatformed by Twitter, that that took away a lot of his power and that, you know, really tampened down his ability to spread his lies about the the election. Now, the thing with Facebook, though, is that they, you know, claim they want to do something about misinformation, but they're very selective. And we have documents, you know, these leaks from insiders at Facebook where they said, you know, like um, there were like a whole bunch of things from Trump sites and from um, even worse, Alex Jones, uh, you know, like uh, uh, sites that were like complete lies. And they took down Alex Jones, but they wouldn't take down people that were spreading his videos. And so they continue to spread. Uh, and so Facebook kind of like picks and chooses between who, which type of disinformation they'll allow and which they won't allow. And in some cases, they promote people. Um, like Ben Shapiro, like he's, I think, has some sort of financial relationship or something is going on there because they'll promote his website to people who don't want to see him even. Like, uh, and I think that the way going forward has to be that they has to be, it has to be all transparent, that Facebook has to have a public, uh, you know, uh, board that like, you know, like says, this is what our policy is and this is how it's applied. And if someone's taken down, they can appeal it, but it's all visible in public. I think what, um, uh, unfortunately Facebook is trying to do is to keep everything submerged and like we control it. We decide who gets it and who doesn't. And like, you know, you and I might cheer when Twitter takes down Trump, but actually I want it to be like, you know, that the, there are rules in place that they actually say, what it is that could get you taken down and who gets taken down and why. And I think that that's what we have to push for, for real transparency from the social media giants. Uh, if they're going to be, you know, actually, I think they should exercise this power. They should, like, if people are spreading things that are, you know, documented lies, then I, I think it is incumbent to, like, for them to do it. But they're not being transparent about, like, how they're doing it. Right. Well, you have to remember, though, it's a public company. Yeah. Right. And so they are permitted to operate in a way that they deem most profitable, yes. right? Because that's their, that's Zuckerberg's job, right? That's the new CEO or whoever it is right now, Sandra Sandberg. That's their job is to make the company profitable for their shareholders, right? Now, this is where the biggest problem, in my opinion, for Facebook comes in. How do you balance the First Amendment right of people to say what they want. Because you don't want Facebook as being your um, moral guide to the First Amendment. At the same time, prohibiting misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech to be placed on their platform. Now, there's so many competing issues here, including the fact that people don't realize this, but one of Facebook's biggest and most profitable centers is really their data mining of you, right? So they basically know that you and I are speaking right now. How? I don't know. Their algorithms basically have, you know, the ability to 
track where you're going to go in the next half hour and to what store you're going to go and what you're going to buy because it goes by pattern and the algorithms today are able to run so quickly and so effectively. Now, how do they balance their social responsibility, right? Their obligation to society as well as them balancing First Amendment and at the same time balance the profitability to their shareholders. My opinion is they actually have to reinvest into their company and they really don't. There are so many aspects of the company that in my opinion, that if they would reinvest in, they should have um, programs that if you start trying to promote um, a Nazi uprising or an anti-Black Lives Matter movement, that shit should be shut down instantaneously. And these people should, and the information should be forwarded immediately to the FBI. The problem though is companies like Facebook and Google and, you know, and um, all of these other big tech companies, they're like too big to fail. Could you imagine if Google was now required to change their process and they say that we can't and the U.S. government comes in and says, fine, we're shutting you down, which, of course, they could do by passing a rule. Could you imagine how people would have a uh, it be an uproar? Right. What do you mean that you took away my Google? How am I going to figure anything out? Well, that's, just, that's exactly what happened in Australia, right? Like Australia you know, was trying to pass a law saying like Google and Facebook have to share if they're you know using links, they have to share some of that profit uh, with the news organizations. And then you know Facebook and Google shut down. You weren't able to use Facebook in Australia for a couple of weeks. So they they really it was a real battle between these you know these companies, which are some of them have more money than a lot of governments. I mean, like I think Facebook is bigger than many actual governments in the world. Um, so so yeah, it's a real kind of um, dilemma. I, I think the only thing I would emphasize though is. One reason that they're not doing this is, you know, not just profit, but also political alliances. That I think Peter Thiel, um, you know, kind of acted as a go-between between Zuckerberg and Trump. And that, like, the, um, that kind of explains why some of the, these things that people inside Facebook wanted to shut down. People inside Facebook knew that they were, you know, like, people were organizing violence and were organizing attacks. Uh, and, like, somebody very powerful in the company uh, you know, put a stop to efforts to shut that down. Yeah, it's really, it's scary because you're right. They are too big to fail. Yeah. And we really do need to get a grip on what's going on right yeah. now. Otherwise, we're going to be in a very bad position in terms of controlling, again, this constant and never-ending misinformation and disinformation campaign that other politicians will end up using because they saw how successful it was for, you know, um, autocrat Donald. Yeah, no, that, that's my biggest fear. Like, I always thought Trump, you know, like, he's a bad guy and dangerous, but, like, I didn't think he had it in him to be a Mussolini or a Hitler, where you kind of had, those guys had some brains. They had some <laughs> understanding of how to run things. I'm always worried that some American person is going to take Trump's motto and but it will be somebody who's not lazy, is like you know, like knows how the government works, and will like actually like you know do it like in a much worse way. Yeah. So, Gene, I've I've talked about that on my last podcast and several others. My biggest fear as well is that a smarter, yeah, a richer, 
and a more devious Donald Trump will one day emerge. Yeah. Right. We'll call him the Dr. Evil of politics. Yeah. And then we're going to be in real serious trouble yeah. because you could rest assured. And I say this and I say this not to be anti-Trump, but I say it to be factual that had Donald Trump won this 2020 election, you would now see him day number one campaigning for four more years, eight more years. Yeah. That's what he that's what he wanted. I mean, he was talking to Xi Jinping about the exact same thing. Why do we have to have these elections every four <laughs> years? I should just be made ruler for life. This is true. So, gee, let me turn around and let me thank you for your time. Let me thank you for your amazing um, stories, your articles, your tweets, for your humor in much of this as well. Um, yeah, even yeah. though oh, to the, yeah, you have to, you know, I had, um, George Wallace on the show and he was telling me the same thing. You got to smile. You got to find some humor in all of this craziness. Otherwise you fall apart. Yeah. So Jeet, let me thank you and wish you, uh, all the best. And you and I will stay in touch. Yes. Thank you so much. It was really great talking to you. The same Jeet. Be well. And now for today's mayor culpa in speaking with Jeet here, I am reminded of a persistent thought I have had on this podcast. What happens when a smarter, slicker, less compromised and more capable version of Donald Trump emerges to take on the mantle of Trumpism? At CPAC, we saw what could become of the future. People like Tom Cotton, Christy Nome, Ron DeSantis and Josh Hawley are all in their way more presentable and capable versions of Donald Trump and each of them offered a frightening preview of an authoritarian future. But even that is less of a threat, I believe, than what is happening at the state level, where Trumpism has taken hold with the religious fervor and thanks to the big lie created around election fraud, the GOP has weaponized its assault on our basic voting rights. This man, who we once laughed at, mocked and ignored, has now launched a reactionary movement that is seeking to turn back the clock 70 years into the past. And because we allowed his lies and misinformation to persist, they have gathered into a media and taken aim at our most basic freedoms. To me, this is the most frightening legacy. Not one man or woman taking on the persona of Donald fucking Trump, but the hundreds of thousands of individuals who have become brainwashed into the Trump cult to such a degree that they have begun to change our laws and attack the democratic norms that this country was built on. This is the next front in the battle. I hope we are prepared. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my Smile.
Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.